We're starting a new series. Uh, it is called I Quit. And you may have seen it on the front of the bulletin or on the website or something this week, and you may have wondered what it is that we're actually going to talk about during this series. Because there, there are things that we all do from time to time that we'd be a whole lot better off not doing. There are things that we all do from time to time that the people around us would be a lot better off if we didn't do those things. And and if we could quit doing those things, our lives, our relationships with others, and our relationship with God would be much better, much healthier, and would be consistently growing. And I I think that's the goal. Now, we could take this whole thing, uh, this whole I quit thing a lot of ways. We We could talk about specific sins. We could be extremely direct. But who really wants to get quite that specific? We could do, I I quit misusing God's name, or I I quit getting drunk, or I quit committing adultery, but I don't know if we want to get into those specific weeks. I feel like that series might not be the best way to go about talking about those issues. Maybe we could do, I quit my job. (laughs) Anybody want to do that series? That sounds like a good series. Um, we We could do that. And honestly, for some of you, you would probably feel like your life would be better, your relationships would be better, and even your relationship with God would be better if you quit your job. There, there are people that are certainly in that position. And it might until you realize that it also means you stop getting paid. Um, but instead, what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks are, are, are these specific I quit statements. We're going to talk about I quit making excuses. I quit complaining. I quit living in fear. And I quit comparing. And so today we're going to talk about making excuses because we are extremely good at that, aren't we? Like, I know that I'm, I'm way too good at making excuses. You want to know why I know that I'm way too good at making excuses? Because my kids are way too good, to make, good at making excuses. And at their young age, that means they learned it from me. That means that I taught them how to make excuses, how to have a reason for everything. You know, I've been this consistent example of that to them, most likely. And most of us get to the point where excuse making is a reflex. It's not even something we have to think about. We have reflex excuses that we just throw in when we need them. It's not something we plan to do, but it's also not a good thing. So we have all of these things we could be doing, all of these things we should be doing, all of these changes that we could be making in our lives, all of these opportunities to better ourselves and to better our relationships and to better our relationship with God, and we make excuses why we don't do those things. What do I want to change? What do I want to do more of? What do I want to do less of? We say, I I want to lose some weight. We we say, I want to read the Bible more. We say, I want to spend more time with my family, which are great statements to make. They are. Those are good things. They're great decisions for anyone to make. But unfortunately, what happens to us in, in those moments is this. As soon as I decide to be different, as soon as I decide to make a change, Satan gives me excuses to stay the same. Every time I make the decision, every time we make a decision to to do better, to do different, Satan comes along and says, hey, here's a good reason that that, that's not going to work out for you. I believe that Satan is a master of excuses. Excuses are so useful to him, if you think about it, because because it, it keeps us from growing. It's a great way for him to keep us from growing. Now, Jesus actually told a story about excuses in Luke chapter 14, and the scriptures are in your bulletin. If you got one on your way, and they'll also be on the screen. It says, Jesus replied with this story. Now, we talked last week uh, about the fact that, that Jesus speaks so often in parables. And last week, we tackled one of those stories where he's more direct. We're, we're back to stories here. 
Jesus replied with this story, A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, now Jesus is not just talking, he's not talking about a legitimate party here, like a real party. He's talking about those who make excuses with God. Those who have too much to do to give God their time. Those who who aren't humble enough to, to give God everything. But those excuses, those kinds of excuses, that's us with God so often. I know I should do that, but I'm, I'm not good enough to do that. that. That's an excuse. Or I can always do that later on. That's an excuse. Or, I've got too much stress right now to deal with that. Or I tried that before and I failed, so why bother? It's always something. Every excuse. No excuse is original. Every excuse is something somebody's already used. Depending on where you get your statistics, 40% of people who make New Year's resolutions quit before January ends. How many of you made a resolution this year? How many of you are still doing it? Because it's July. And you'd be pretty rare. Because it also those same statistics say that 75% of people give up before February is over. And my guess is a high percentage of those people could give you a really, really good reason why they stopped. And what I mean by really good reason is an excuse. I didn't have time. Didn't have energy. Kids had too much going on. School was too heavy. Work was too busy. Car broke down. Furnace went out. There's some, some reason that kept you from doing something completely unrelated, most likely. And so the question becomes, why, why do we struggle? Why are excuses such a prevalent part of our existence? And, how do we, and why are they such a big part of how we handle ourselves, how we communicate with other people, how we even deal with God? I think sometimes it's because we don't fully grasp or fully embrace the why in any given decision. We know we need to lose some weight. We may even know it's because it'll help us feel healthier, but we don't understand just how much better we would feel. We don't fully grasp the why. We understand it somewhat, but we don't fully grasp the why. We know we need to read the Bible more. We may even know it'll help us come to know God on a deeper level, but we just don't understand how important that Bible knowledge, that Bible background and reading experience will come in handy during life's hardest moments. We don't fully grasp the why. And so when it comes to our relationship with God, I think we have to ask two questions. What does God want to be different about my life? Like, what does he need to change, for me to change, different, you know, to do more of, to do less of? What do I need to do differently for God? What needs to change in my life to align myself more closely with him? And then Why? Does God want that change in my life? Why does he want that part of my life to be different? What's the benefit? What's the long-term positive? What's the end game? And if we can more clearly connect the why back to the what, I think we could be on the right track here. Simple things we know we need to do, like reading the Bible more, spending more time in prayer, spending more time with our family, being a part of a life group, being committed to to the church, being, you know, reading the Bible even together as a family, doing those kinds of things. They're great what's. And the why is to draw us closer to Jesus. And, and, and if we believe that it's our goal to follow Jesus as closely as possible, to look as much like him as possible, 
then we're connecting the why to the what, and it's a lot harder to make excuses. Even things that might not seem all that related to God that we need to do. You know, I need to get out of debt and start budgeting. Well, in, well, in truth, God has blessed us with everything that we have, and he's called us to take care of it responsibly and, and to give back to him as well. And we connect the why to the what, and it's harder to make excuses. I need to eat better and get some exercise. Well, in truth, God gave me this life and this body, and it's a temple, and I'm not caring for it very well. And we connect the why to the what, and it's harder to make excuses. Now notice in all of those, I said it's harder to make excuses, not impossible to make excuses. But this is, this is what I believe. I believe this is true. If God wants something for my life, and I want something for my life, no excuse can keep that from happening. Only me ceasing to actually want it to happen can keep it from happening. The excuse is just a, it's just a distraction. It's a crutch. It's a diversion from the reality that sometimes we just quit. Sometimes we just give up. But we don't have to. In the book of Exodus, uh, when God's people were enslaved in Egypt uh, under Pharaoh, God called Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh on his behalf, to go to the most powerful man in the land and request that God's people be freed. This would have been an intimidating situation for anyone. I, I, don't, I don't like to like go talk to people who are in like high positions of authority. I'm always afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And this is like, on a magnified level. Moses is literally talking to the most powerful man in the area, maybe the most powerful man in the world. God wants him to go do that. And so Moses was no exception here. He was extremely intimidated by God's request of him. In Exodus 4, beginning in verse 10, it reads this way, but Moses pleaded with the Lord, O Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Now, we don't fully understand exactly what Moses' issue was here. We don't know if maybe he had some sort of a stutter or if he was just not a confident speaker, but it's clear that he had some issues that he believed would keep him from being effective in what God wanted him to do. Moses had his reasons. He had excuses, and, and, and I think it's a pretty good excuse. Like, you want me to go talk to someone of great power and importance, but the thing I struggle most with is speaking. I'm probably not the right person for this responsibility. It's an excuse, but it's a pretty good one. But the issue here is that instead of focusing on the ability of God, Moses focused on his own inability. Instead of focusing on God's unlimited power, Moses was completely focused on his own weakness, on his own lack of power. And God lets him know that's exactly what he's doing. In verse 11, it says, Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? That is a loaded question for Moses. Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I'll be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. This is extremely important for us to understand. If we recognize the power of God and that God is with us, there will never be a need for excuses because we'll always believe we can, see, we'll, we can succeed and we'll always do whatever we need to do. It's when we lose sight of God and focus on our weak selves that we feel the need to make excuses. It's like God saying to Moses, do you not think that I know that that's a struggle for you? Do you think you're giving me a new piece of information 
oh, you're right, Moses, let me get somebody else. I, I don't think that that's what's going on here. God says, I made you. I know you. And I can be strong where you're weak. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 26 and 27, it says this, Then this message came to Jeremiah from the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is there anything too hard for me? See, there are a lot of characteristics of God that we, we cling to. God is love, right? And we'll say God is powerful, but, but I think we struggle to fully grasp just how powerful he is because it's beyond our understanding. It's one of those things I always try to describe this way to teenagers. Um, heaven is not describable. It is beyond our understanding, but we try to describe it based on our understanding. That's where you get ideas like streets of gold and pearly gates. Are the streets actually gold and the gates actually pearly? I have no idea, but neither does anybody else because it's beyond our understanding. And so we try to understand the power of God in our own terms, but we have limited understanding. God is so much more powerful than even what we can imagine. And so if the question is, is anything too hard for God? No, nothing is too hard for God. God is able, he is absolutely able to fill the gaps in us, to be strong where we're weak, to carry us when we can't carry ourselves any longer. You see, really, this comes down to, to two ideas. That this is really, we need to do these things. We need to do what we can do. If you do what you can do, you're, you're taking a step in the right direction. We are extremely capable people. God has blessed us with skills and talents and abilities and passions that he wants us to put into play for him. And we can do that. We can take on any challenge. And even if we cannot do it all on our own, and often we can't do it all on our own, we should do what we can do. If you want to eat better, get rid of the Twinkies in the cabinet and the soda in the fridge. If you want to stop drinking, don't go to bars. If you want to join a life group, talk to someone who can help you find a good one. I'd be glad to talk to you. I tell this story, but it never, it never ceases to make this point. When I was in college, I had a weekend ministry in a place called Sharps Chapel, Tennessee, and it was, it was an hour and 15 minutes from Knoxville. It was, it was literally every Sunday driving to the middle of nowhere and then keeping on for, you know, 20 more miles. You know, I mean, we were literally out there. And we would pick up kids along the way because a lot of the kids that would come to this small little country church came by themselves. They didn't, their parents wouldn't bring them, wouldn't even drive them there. And so we, honestly, I'll be confession time, we would fit more people in a car than seatbelts. But we were really out in the middle of nowhere. And this, it, this wasn't a long time ago, you know, this was, this was mid-2000s, so it wasn't good. But we wanted to get those kids to church. And there was this kid, his name was Garrett, and he and his sister, their parents, they were really nice to us, and they liked that we come and, would come and take their kids to church, but they, they wouldn't come. And so every week we'd pick Garrett and his sister up, and every week the car would smell like cigarette smoke, because his parents smoked a lot. And it wasn't too long after we started hanging out with Garrett that Garrett said, you know, I've, I've been smoking since I was like 12. And I just remember thinking, Phew. And he wanted to quit. So that was the good part about the conversation. He said, I really want to quit. And so we prayed for him and we, we, we told him what he needed to do. And he said, I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to quit cold turkey. And, and I knew it was going to be hard for him because his parents smoked. They smoked in the house and out of the house and in the cars. And he was always going to be around it. And so several weeks went by and Garrett was trying really hard. And we picked him up one day and he got in the car and we said, Garrett, how's it going? And he said, I started smoking again. 
And we, you know, trying not to seem too disappointed in him or anything like that, you know, we talked to him and, and I don't remember if it was myself or one of the other college guys that was with me said, Garrett, where'd you get the cigarette when you started that first one? And he said, well, when I quit a couple weeks ago, I still had half a pack left. And I didn't want to waste it because it cost me money. So I stuck it in a drawer in my room. And we just kind of looked at him and said, Garrett, do you, do you understand that you didn't really want to quit if you kept the cigarettes that close by? And we do that. We, we, we have all these things that, that we can do, but we don't do what we can do. We don't do the little things. We don't get rid of what needs to be gotten rid of. We don't take the steps that we can take sometimes. Garrett wanted to quit. I, I believe that he did want to quit, but he didn't do what he could do. He didn't take all the steps he needed to take. He didn't get the cigarettes out of his room, let alone out of his life, and so, so he, he didn't make it. This, this is the part of this whole idea of the two things. This is the one that we honestly don't have to over-spiritualize. We can do part of this. When it's time to make a decision or a change in our lives, we have the power to do part of it. But the other half is the more important thing, which is to trust God to do what we cannot do. We have to trust God to do the things we can't do. God told Moses that he would help him speak and that he would teach him what to do. He would tell him what to say. God said, I'll be strong where you are weak. And through that team effort, we will be successful. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about a thorn in the flesh that he dealt with, a weakness, an issue in his life that kept coming up. And scholars are torn about exactly what he was talking about. But it was something that clearly affected Paul because he wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. He said, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, this thorn in the flesh. Each time, he being God, he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Paul said, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul gained an understanding of just how much he needed God. And once he realized that, he embraced just how much he needed God. Now, this is, this is a harsh truth, but I believe this. I believe that excuses, in a way, are insulting God. I believe that they are because we're choosing to fail by not asking for God's help, or we're choosing to, know, to ignore that He's always with us. When we make those excuses, we're, we're basically saying, God, I don't need you. I heard it stated this way once, excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. And so you really have a choice. We can make excuses for anything or we can stop making excuses and make the changes in our lives and take on the challenges in our lives that God wants for us, knowing that in those moments, in those changes, in those challenges, and in those things that God calls us to do, He is with us always. Job 42.2 says this, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Job talking about God. It, it, that's in the NIV, but I actually like the New Living Translation there even better. It says this, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. There was this game that we played um, 
when we were kids. I don't, I don't think that they're allowed to play it anymore. There are several of those games, like Chubby Bunny, and we used to play Chubby Bunny. Um, if you don't know what that is, ask me, and then never play it, because you might die. Um, but there are a lot of games we played when I was a kid, and I'm not that old, so this, this just shows you how quickly things change. Um, but there are games we played as kids that I just don't think are allowed anymore. Like, we used to play Red Rover. Do they still play Red Rover? That's a dangerous game, right? Um, if you've never played Red Rover, basically the way Red Rover works is you get a whole group of kids together, and you line them up in two lines facing one another, and they hold hands, and they have to leave enough space between them that a person can get through there, because what's going to happen is, a side at a time, they're going to say, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Billy come over. And then Billy runs, and Billy's entire goal in Red Rover is to break through a set of hands. If he breaks through the set of hands, he gets to choose one of those two people that he broke through and bring them back to his team. If he gets caught and their hands hold, he has to stay on this team. And the goal is to get your team to have more people. Ridiculous, right? The stuff we used to do. Um, and so Red Rover, was we played it all the time. At like, at re, I don't mean like we played it in the neighborhood. I mean we played it at school. Like, here kids, run into one another. Um, and so we also had lawn darts at home. Anybody, I'm just... I'm thinking of all those things that are really dangerous. You would think, I was always a pretty big kid, you would think that I was pretty good at Red Rover, right? Because your entire goal is to break through somebody with enough force you ought to be able to do it every time. I was terrible at Red Rover. Here's why. I didn't like the collision very much. And so every time I would run at the other team, I'd get my full head of steam. And of course, if you're known to not be good, they will always call you. That's Red Rover. Um, I would run and I would run and I would get close to the people. And you know what I would do? I would hesitate before I hit the line. And every time I hesitated before I hit the line, it was enough of a hesitation that I'd always get caught. I'd always get caught. And so I'd always end up staying with that team. And then the other team would call me back because they knew they could keep me as well. And it, there needed to always be like a rule about how many times you could get called, but there, but there never was. But the problem was I would, I would do that. I would tense up because I knew the collision was coming. When I was in high school, I, I was a junior staffer at middle school weeks of camp at the camp that I grew up at in Pennsylvania. And we used to play this game. Again, I don't know why we were allowed to do this. We used to play a game called Squamish. And Squamish was basically some combination of like rugby and I, I can't even decide. But the, the goal was you tackle the person with the ball. But you had to yell org before you hit them. Literally had to yell org. And so I was playing. We, we were, as, as senior hires, we had to be careful with the middle schoolers. But I, I was trying to tackle this kid. He was a football player, but he was a middle schooler. He was a lot smaller than me. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to have my moment here. Significantly larger than this kid. Should not have been a problem. And I got in front of him. And instead of going at him, I set my feet. And as I said, org, he ran over me, flattened me, flattened by a middle schooler. Talk about a terrible day. I hesitated when I knew that the collision was coming, and it cost me because I knew it might hurt. I knew I, I might not get through the Red Rover line. I knew that, that it was probably going to hurt to try to tackle this kid. I assumed there was a good chance I failed, so I failed. But here's the truth. If I was 100% sure that every time I was going to run over in Red Rover that I was going to break through, if I was 100% sure that I was going to tackle that kid, I would have never hesitated. I only hesitated because I had doubt. If I was 100% sure that I was going to make it, I would have never hesitated. When we believe with faith that God is with us, 
we, we don't need to hesitate anymore. Because he's with us. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 5, says this. This is Jesus speaking. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You see, what this really comes down to is staying connected to God. Staying connected to our power source. Cultivating that relationship and living with the confidence and the knowledge that God is with us. When we truly believe that God is with us, there is no more room. For excuses. Let's pray. God, we so often take for granted just how much you are in our corner, just how much you are with us, just all, all the things that you do for us. We fail to acknowledge so much. And God, when we look away from you, when our eyes lose focus on you and and, and begin to focus on ourselves and begin to worry about our faults and our shortcomings, we begin to make these excuses. But God, you've called us to something greater than that. You've called us to be a light in a dark place. You've called us to change the world. And you didn't call us to do that alone. You called us to do that with you, your power with us. we'll probably still try to make excuses when you challenge us. When you call us to more, to better, to reach out, we'll still probably make excuses, but I pray that you would help us to not lose sight of you being with us, to not forget that you're there, that your strength is in us, that we're nothing without you. Now, there's too many people dying every day in this world that don't know you for us to keep making excuses why we won't try to change the world. I pray that we get the excuses out of the way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.